This week's episode is brought to you by the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo. The success of a brand is about strong science and strong art. You need both, don't you? You need left brain and right brain. And I think private equity has been culturally brilliant for me and the company. You know, I would look, I haven't had any bad experience yet of private equity. I think it cuts out politics. There's no room for excuses. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. The Kirk Geiger brand has a rich heritage in the UK, one that dates back for about 60 years. But now the brand is going global. And that's all thanks to, well, at least partly in thanks to, the brand's CEO, Neil Clifford. And he has helped the brand through many moments, many milestones. And now he is sitting with us on Retail Remix. And honestly, we chat about it all. The core business stuff, how the brand is expanding across territories and categories, but also some of the fun topics that I wasn't expecting, such as the culture of retail, things he's learned from private equity, and being a part of that entire environment, and how Kurt Geiger is using kindness as a core attribute and principle to drive its investments. Listen in, because I think you will get that perfect blend of business strategy insights, trend insights, but also some inspiration to drive your day. Neil, thanks so much for being on the show. It is so great to have you on. Oh, thank you. Lovely to be here. So anytime I have a high-level exec on the line with us, I always love to have them define or share a little bit of their viewpoints about the brand that they represent and work for. So with that, I would love for you to describe the Kirk Geiger brand and basically what you would define as its unique differentiators in the fashion market. What really makes it stand out? Well, Kurt Geiger is 60 years old and it started in London. So Kurt Geiger was an amazing shoe designer that came to London in the late 50s and opened his first store 60 years ago next month. And I suppose, therefore, we are really grounded in London. London is our home. London is the place that we love the most. And we get a lot of creative spirit from that city, which I can talk a lot about. Creativity is another word we use a lot. I think the British, we're not just good at humor. I think it's probably our world skill is humor. But after humor, it would be creativity and fun. And we're very joyful as a race. And we we're experimental and we love to be creative. So we'd like to think that our brand shouts creativity and all the things that come with that. And I suppose the other point would be linked to creativity is color. We're extremely good at color. I think the funny thing about London is we're used to the skies that are gray. Therefore, we love to play with color. And if there was one piece of DNA in our brand that we'd think is a differentiator. It's the way we play with color. So London, creativity in general, we're never scared of doing crazy things from a product creation perspective and color. 
So those would be the three things would come to mind in this year. Love that. And I love brands that have such close ties to communities, to cultures, and really seeing how that shines through in the product, in the brand as it evolves across channels and across territories, which I think is going to be a big component of our conversation today. And to that end, you've been uh, CEO of the brand since 2004. So you have likely seen quite a bit of change. So which consumer shifts do you think have had the most notable impact on the brand, on the business over this period? Well, the funny thing about Kurt Geiger is you either stay forever or you stay sort of five minutes. I mean, like any good company, I think you have a very strong DNA and it's almost like one flow of the cuckoo's nest. You know, I'm allowed to leave, but I never have. <laughs> I think someone will be maybe asking me to leave or maybe I'll retire when I'm like 110 years old or something. But yeah, I've been here a long time. And I think the great thing about my job, and I left I left school with no qualifications, which I'll come to later maybe in some of our kindness activity. Retailers are brand managers. We're very good at lots of things, and we're maybe not an absolute expert in one thing. And the wonderful thing about fashion is it's never static. I think I've been through about four different trends of heel heights, We've gone from everything is about sneaker to nothing is about the sneaker. I've seen many changes, but I suppose the company and the brand always has to keep up with variety of what the customer's wanting from us today. That's the wonderful thing about my job. Nothing is ever the same. And I could imagine, too, it makes for an interesting exercise as consumer expectations evolve. Like, how do you adapt to that while also still being true? to the brand DNA and the brand essence that you told us about at the top of our conversation? Well, I suppose even though Kurt Geiger, the interesting thing about Kurt Geiger, the guy, is when he started in 63, he was also designing handbags as well as shoes. So we've gone back to the archive and seen some wonderful handbags that existed and accessories that existed 60 years ago. We were predominantly a shoe company for 50 years. And I joined a company in 96. So I was finally pushed everyone out of the way in a charming way to be the CEO in whenever 2003 or four. But we were a shoe company and it was only 10 years ago where we started to play around and frankly have fun with accessories, not in a commercial spreadsheet sort of way, but what would she love from us that's not shoes? So we've been on this amazing journey now for 10 years developing the brand into not just being the historical position of footwear, into being a brand across many categories. And now we sell hundreds of pieces of jewelry a week, thousands of handbags a week, hats, scarves, gloves, swimwear, eyewear. So that's the amazing journey that we've been on. And fortunately, the customer really, the DNA is still about color and ornamentation and joy and an emotional product that changes the way you feel when you put it on, whether it be a shoe or a hat or a piece of jewelry. That's the DNA of the company. And we've learned and maybe had the confidence to be able to spread our wings across new categories. I love that. I love that. So as you've been able to spread your wings, have there been any other 
dynamics within the luxury sector in particular? Like as you've thought about the growth of the brand and the evolution of the brand. I mean, there are probably a few different ways you can take that question, like in terms of consumer behaviors, category trends, fashion trends, or even technology trends. But are are there any big moments from the luxury sector and changes happening within that that have guided you? Well, I would answer the question slightly differently, if I may. Okay. We had a big ambition to take our business to North America. We've always loved, the company has always loved and admired the United States. I personally adore the place and any excuse for me to spend time in the USA, I'm there. So we had the ambition, we had the motivation, we had lots of dreams, let's say, but we didn't know how to do it until we found an American. And that's really been a big shift for us. We managed to persuade a wonderful guy called Stephen Souza to join us who'd spend 20 odd years with Michael Kors, to be blunt. And he also fell in love with our brand and was very intrigued about what our brand could be outside of Europe. That has probably been the biggest shift as what happened to us in the last five years is we brought someone onto the board that gave us the confidence, but also the roadmap and the strategies around, we had the product. We weren't short of creativity. You know, we, our creative director, Rebecca, will create 500 handbags with her team each season. New styles of handbags, you know, we're a creative machine and we only bring 150 or 200 of those to the market. We weren't short of product and ideas. What we needed was a, was a route through that. So Stephen brought that. Got it, got it. And have there been any notable learnings from this U.S. expansion process thus far, like as far as what has resonated with the market, or have you taken any notable approaches to expanding into the U.S. that like you had to think through, okay, like how do we, again, stay true to the brand, but like still adapt to what the market needs and expects from us as a brand? Yeah, we're a very self-critical company. I mean, we endeavor to celebrate sometimes. I don't want you to think that I'm this sort of horrible CEO that's very miserable and not very mo- <laughs> I would never not think very that. motivating. But we like to look in the mirror a lot. We don't look out the window and blame other people for anything. So, I mean, 12 years ago, 2011, we opened three stores in North America. And they, they were not a success. We were a failure. That was when we were owned by the Jones Group. On reflection, we hadn't considered the market. We took some stores that were in the wrong locations. Actually, we did everything wrong, to be honest. So we're constantly learning and evolving and developing. I suppose that the point I would say around the recent expansion, what was great is that we had someone that maybe had the scars already with Stephen. So he guided us around our distribution strategy, you know, be, be important to three people, be partners with brands, the department stores in Dillard's and Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom that respect pricing, that will display your product well, that will give us access, I suppose, to a wonderful consumer base across the US in different markets and be respectful of that and stick to your guns. And if other people call you up and want to distribute the 
the brand. Sometimes the most important things you do in life is say no as well as say yes, right? So I think the channel strategy was an important one. We then invested millions of pounds into a DC in, in LA to prepare ourselves for our digital business. And now that is by far our single biggest door in the world. It's north to be north of $40 million this year. That's Kogiger.com America. So we invested a lot up front. Maybe in the past, we would have tried to cut corners and do that in a slightly cheaper way. But again, Stephen guided us that we needed to do that correctly. We also had a very supportive private equity partner in Sinvan that believed in our strategy and gave us the capital and gave us the, I suppose, encouragement and strategic guidance to deliver that well. So I think we're all learning, aren't we? Every day's a school day. We're always trying to, I suppose, what with, you know, I've been in private equity now almost 20 years through four different partners. And you learn, you learn in private equity that we all make mistakes in our personal lives and in our professional lives. The key is acknowledge them quickly and make changes quickly to adapt. But, you know, take risks. I think the worst thing companies can do, and we've been guilty of that sometimes, is moving a bit too slowly and don't learn enough. But you have to be fast in our industry and learn quickly. And if you make mistakes, which everyone does, fix them sharpish. So quick follow-up question there, Neil, if I may. Do you think that experience, you know, being so immersed in private equity, does that environment support that fail fast, learn quickly, move forward culture? And if so, like, how do you facilitate that and I guess extend that through within the four walls of your business? Because I know historically just covering retail, that has always been a big capabilities and cultural gap, I think, for a lot of businesses. So are there any learnings or insights you would share from that experience? Just, you know, taking the culture from like one industry slash way of doing things to retail, which is very historically <laughs> relatively slow moving? Well, look, I don't know. I mean, I can only say how I feel and my personal experiences. I, as I said, I didn't, I didn't go to university. So work has been my university. And the wonderful thing about, and I adore private equity. It was a new thing for me. I didn't understand it. And I went actually had a little holiday for a couple of years. I went to Bali with TPG was my first experience. I left Kurt Geiger and then came back. So probably five private equity companies that I've had experience with. And surrounding yourself by people that are smarter than you is a good thing. You very rarely meet someone who's not really smart in private equity. Maybe they can't design a handbag, but they can certainly strategically guide you and help you and the we're obviously very granular now, as you can imagine, after 18 years of private equity, there isn't one number that the company doesn't have or can't find it within two minutes. But the culture of data and studying analysis very carefully with people with big brains and mixing that, mixing that with the art, you know, the success of a brand is about strong science and strong art. You need both, don't you? You need left brain and right brain. And I think private equity has been culturally brilliant for me and the company. You know, I would look, I haven't had any bad experience yet of private equity. I think it cuts out politics. There's no room for excuses. I always wanted to be the boss. You know, when I was 12 years old, sitting in my bed, dreaming about 
I don't know, being successful and having money and, you know, making an impact in some way. I always was never scared of the responsibility of taking charge. That was one thing I didn't have. So I think in that regard, if you face up to anything you do wrong and admit it and don't blame other people, that is a culture that is appropriate for private equity. Mm. I know that's relatively deep and I'm sharing. Yeah, no, it's very uh, profound. You know, I'm sharing, <laughs> mate. I'm on the psychiatrist's couch now. You no, know, but, I love that. I but, love that. But, you know, I think we all have to take responsibility in I'm the boss, right? The numbers start and end with me. And my job is to encourage and recruit and find wonderful people that are much better at many, many things than me. And also then with our private equity partners, they're always much smarter, more, more better educated, more insightful, better read, but they can't design a handbag. So it's a nice, it's a nice mix, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny when you were sharing your response and you brought up the art and the science, the left brain and the left right brain. It's like that those two visuals popped into my head almost at the same time because we always hear that the most innovative brands can almost take the ego out of it, if that makes sense, and say like, okay, like what is the data telling us? What is really happening here? And if something doesn't work, you take accountability and you move on. It's so- wonderful. You know, I'm so lucky. I mean, retail brand... And we're the biggest employers outside of the government, probably in the USA and in the UK. So we have a we have a responsibility also to maybe I'll come on to our project around our Business by Design Academy. We have a responsibility. You know, I left school with no qualifications. I'm dyslexic. I can't read. But I knew, you know, I had a burning fire in me that wanted to make impact, wanted to be successful, wanted materialistic things I wanted to have an impact in the world and retail as an industry has given me that that's a wonderful thing isn't it yeah it's amazing are you ready to explore the evolved customer journey where content community and commerce converge At the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo, you'll learn how brands and retailers are embracing new consumer insights, new technologies, and new destinations to create relevant and resonant experiences. Taking place on June 4th through the 6th at McCormick Place in Chicago, the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo will bring some of the brightest minds in the industry together for unique networking and learning opportunities, including keynote speaker, marketing expert, and author of for the culture, Marcus Collins. Check out the show notes to register today. So you've been very focused on expanding into the U.S. Are there any other territories that you're marking as next in line? Okay, so how are you thinking about that? Well, you know, our first stores, our first directly operated stores will be in Mexico. Oh, great. We open three stores next month, two in Mexico City and one in Monterey with our wonderful partner, um, El Palacio. And we are without, I mean, I'm British, so I'm always embarrassed with our success anyway. And sometimes <laughs> we show off more than we do, actually. But anyway, we're a phenomenon in, in Mexico. We cannot keep up with demand in Mexico. It's so wonderful for us to see our success there. And it's really driven around our product design and our color and our use of color. You know, we are really successful in places where the sky is blue. And it's funny because the sky in London is normally grey, even though you know London probably is the best city in the world. It's not famous for its weather or infamous for its weather, maybe. And we 
Therefore, we indulge in colour more than most because we don't see it in the sky. And I think Mexico is a phenomenon for us. And actually, then all of the the southern states of the USA, you know, whether it be Southern California, Texas, Florida, obviously, we can also keep up with demand. You know, it's really, for us, very humbling and exciting. So we'll, the first three stores will be Mexico this October, and then we will open six directly operated stores in North America next year. That's fantastic. And it's funny you bring up, Neil, the point that your brand resonates where, where the sky is, is clear and, and very blue, because as I was researching for our, our conversation, I saw so much about your collaboration with Matthew Williamson. And I saw this headline that this collab was the perfect collab for living <laughs> out your white lotus fantasy, which really brought a distinct visual to mind around the colors, the pattern usage. It seemed very truly Kurt Geiger, but also had the essence of the collaborator, which in my opinion makes for a great collaboration. So can you tell us a little bit about that, like from a strategy standpoint, how it came about, and I guess really how the outcome has shaken out for you guys, especially as you think about the future and other collabs that you may do in the future? Yeah, well, we I think because colour is our thing, we're always looking for wonderful British artists that we want to collaborate with to, in a way, put a different lens on some of our key icons of the company. And Matthew was a perfect partner for that. It was a a much bigger success than we thought. All of our pop-up stores around the world were extended for another month longer because they were so successful. Of course, it was lovely doing a wonderful party in Mallorca with Matthew. And no, it was a big success. And I think it was a nice cocktail mix between the two companies, between Matthew and us. And each year we will partner with new British artists, whether they be in design, in photography, in painting, in art, to maybe put a new lens on our brand and our colours and our DNA. And yeah, so therefore, we're always in search for new ways to interpret what are our key icons of the company. So yes, it was it was really cool. It was really cool. And we partnered with Bloomingdale's in the USA and they were super, super happy, actually. Oh, that's great. So this partnership kind of goes through a few different lenses. There's the design partner slash collaborator, which it seems like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like it's the artist slash creative that has a new spin or distinct creative point of view that adds something to the Kurt Geiger brand. Whereas, you know, Bloomingdale's is kind of the retail amplifier, I guess you yes, could say. So right. like, okay, so thinking about it through a few lenses kind of helps you ensure that you're getting the creative output that is expected, but also you get the business impact as well, which let's be frank, all of our listeners are probably thinking like, okay, what are what's the outcome? Is it increased reach? Is it revenue? So you guys had all of the boxes checked, it seems. Yes, yes. Often you can't tick all the boxes, can you, in life or in work or whatever, but this one certainly did. And it, it's given us a lot of confidence for what our plans are for next year actually we've all i can't tell you what it is but we've got a wonderful collaboration that will launch at the same time next june in 24 which will have also all of those elements new development in our core products a new wonderful take on our colors and new categories that we'll be able to play in 
commercially, we hope, as successful as the Matthew Project. And I think that fundamentally, the customer is always looking for, you know, she's looking for something new, particularly when times are a little tougher in terms of your financial position and your disposable income. You've really got to put something in front of him or her that is uh, very, very distinctive and something that you haven't seen before. I think we've all got, you know, we've all got enough shoes and handbags in our wardrobes, haven't we? So we've got to try harder. All brands will have to try harder to reimagine or create new things that, I mean, one of our best-selling handbags last year with Nordstrom was a handbag that was actually a wine glass. Oh, wow. So it was, it was, it gave you the ability to not only carry a few things out on the town, but you could also go outside of the pub and drink a glass of wine <laughs> in your handbag and have a cigarette or whatever you do outside, get some fresh air. So I think that, as I said to you in the beginning, what we're good at as Brits is being a little bit crazy. <laughs> we're maybe not the best sometimes at making money. We're certainly not the best of maximization of an opportunity you know we're surrounded by water with this little island some we've got lots of things wrong with us which we love to talk about to be honest <laughs> but what we are is we we're a little bit bonkers we would say and therefore we have ideas that maybe other brands might not and we want to keep that up well and i think that wine glass purse example is a great way to convey fashion and function so <laughs> some yes. may say bonkers i say practical yeah yeah exactly <laughs> So as we think about this idea of expansion and, you know, new ways for the brand to create and kind of show up for the customer, I'm curious, how are you guys thinking about the next wave of consumer, meaning Gen Z? Everyone's talking about them. Everyone's thinking about them. But I mean, what does this look like and feel like for Kurt Geiger, which has such a rich heritage and, of course, certain distinct elements that the brand is known for? I mean, this could be design, it could be marketing, however you want to interpret that. Well, I'll say a couple of things, but maybe one big one, really. There's a word that I haven't mentioned, which is, in a way, our third part of our DNA. London, number one, creativity, number two, and kindness, number three. And we've always tried to be a very decent company for our customers, and more importantly, in a way, our employees. But I think the pandemic changed everything for everybody you know suddenly commerce and community merged didn't they you know we were no matter how wealthy you were how successful you were in life we were all very scared about what the future held and we as a company really motivated by our private equity company to a large degree because we knew that we were safe you know we we knew that the company would continue, whatever whatever happened over that period. And the lockdown in the UK was a long one, you know, 270 days of store closures. We did a lot of very positive things. We gave away over £2 million to our uh, National Health Service in handbags and shoes. We supported all of our staff by topping up their salaries to full salary over that whole period. And what came out of that, many other things that we did, what came out of that is we decided that really kindness should be at the center of the company and you need to, for the future, any successful brand in a way needs to try to do its best for the broader church of the world as opposed to doing best for the employees in terms of sales and margins and things. So we started, took us a year actually, our own independent charity called the Kurt Geiger Foundation. And really what our goal is there is to help young people 
with their creative ambitions. I go back to my my personal experience. And you know what? We've all got a personal experience, haven't we, about someone that helped us, someone that was the one person in the beginning of our careers. We can all name that person. And we spent a year with a lot of young people talking about their challenges to break through in the creative industries. If you don't have your parents that have relationships, if you haven't been to an amazing university, if you can work as an intern for free because you're personally wealthy, whatever the reasons and the barriers are. So we decided actually to cut a long story short, we're launching our own academy for 30 young people. Launched actually last Friday. If you follow us on Instagram, you'll see our messaging there. We're taking four and a half thousand square feet of our head office space and we're building we're building a school inside the company. We've recruited some teachers, we're engaging all of the management team. Because you know what, retail brand management, you think about the skills we have in this office. We have 300 employees in our office, but in selling, in marketing, in finance, in design, in creativity, in HR, we have so many skills that we could be sharing for free. And that's what we're going to do because we think that it's good to be good, basically. It's good to do decent things and it really helps the culture of the company, but it also means you're existing not just for short-term profit growth. We'll have the best year of the company's history this year, so we're on a good trajectory. And we want to take some of that it will cost us about two and a half million dollars. So not an insignificant amount of money to launch the Business by Design Academy. And then we'll, that's starting in London in February of next year to celebrate our 60 year anniversary. And then the, in 2025, we'll bring that to New York and do the same thing in New York. So I think to answer your question very slightly, I think for a brand to be relevant and successful for the future, because, you know, God doesn't give us a given right ever to be successful. You've got to stay relevant with your customer. And we think we're very good at designing wonderful shoes and handbags that are distinctively designed and very well priced. So, you know, we know we have a market share opportunity, but we also have to be decent with it and do good things for the broader world and that's what we're trying to do with our business by design academy i love that i love that because you're not just contributing to the greater good so to speak but you're in a way almost creating an opportunity for individuals to get immersed in retail that maybe wouldn't otherwise yes exactly exactly and my big vision on it actually is all of our recruitment will come through the Business by Design Academy. Because if you think about the challenges that we spent a year talking to young people on this, whether it be lack of money, lack of contacts, lack of confidence, lack of ability to know how to break through into this wonderful industry that we work in, and I've got personal experience of that too. If we can open the door for 50 or 60 people a year, wonderful young people, and help them build contacts, experience, knowledge, help them write their resumes better, help fund them through the first 12 months. And, you know, anyone that's great will get a a one-year work experience with us following on from attending the academy. I think that, you know, that's just a 
just a great thing to do, to be honest. And in a very small way, we want to make direct impact there. That's great. So the school, we talked a little bit about future collaborations, store plans. Is there anything else coming down the pike for you guys? I mean, you seem a little busy, but is there anything we missed that you want to talk no, about? No, I, lo- I, I love busy. I think <laughs> not to say I'm successful, but, you know, they do say, don't they, when, when you want something done, ask a busy person. And we are a busy company, yes. We're bouncing and full of ideas the whole time. I think that's why the company has navigated through some difficult times and no one gives you that ticket of success. You have to sort of grind it every day, both with left brain and right brain. So I think, I mean, we've got a whole project on for men. Men are half the population of the world and we haven't done a good job for our man. So we've got a whole new team in men's footwear, men's accessories, got loads of big ideas to to bring the man along with our journey. That's just that's just one little thing. You know, we've opened 400 doors in Europe in the last 18 months. So the USA is 400, Europe is also 400. So we're even though our number one market now, which actually I'm so happy about, is North America, is bigger than the UK for us in sales volumes. So that's a wonderful milestone, something that I, don't, I would have only dreamt about 10 years ago. But now Europe, Europe hopefully will follow that. We put a lot of investment, a lot of time. We're opening a brand new showroom in Milan in November, which will bring our brand closer to the European market too. So then we've got our eyes set on Europe into 2025 and 20, into Asia, I'm sorry, 2025, 2026. So we're not done yet. Love that. You heard it here, folks. No, this has been amazing, amazing meal and and really appreciate you sharing so much insight and deeper perspective into all of the incredible things that Kirk Geiger is doing. So, I mean, to close this out, obviously, we noted at the top, you've seen the brand through so many phases and stages, growth goals, new categories, several management buyouts. What learnings from your tenure would you share with your peers listening to this conversation now? I mean, especially as we continue to navigate all the uncertainties, all of the pressure points, but also all the things that, all of the goals that your peers want to achieve, especially as it relates to keeping that passion for retail alive. Like what are some key learnings that you would share? Oh God, I've got so many. (laughs) What would I say? I mean, I was very lucky with private equity. I have to say, I think that private equity as a culture keeps you very sharp and very focused on the big, important things. So I think in that respect, concentrate on the big things and the little things. I was once given that advice, which I always thought was quite nice, you know, be completely ridiculous in the detail, spend enough time on the big future things that you can affect. I suppose travel a lot. Every day is a learning day. Every day is a school day for me. And I think the more you travel, the more you see the world and see opportunities. I think we were guilty maybe 20 years ago of being a little bit UK focused in our culture. So I think we've, we encouraged not just myself, but all of the teams to travel and see the world. We look in the mirror a lot. I mean, sometimes it can be a bit of a grinding culture a little bit because you would think maybe it's true that I'm never that happy. I try to keep that inside as much as I can. You know, I do my happiness at home. At work, I'm always looking for the next thing. How can we push forward? How can we do things better, differently? The spreadsheets tell you what you're doing well 
the spreadsheets don't really tell you clear enough what you need to do better and what ideas you can have. I'm not, I'm not sure whether that's a good advice to say be unhappy at work because obviously, <laughs> obviously I, I love my work, but I struggle with contentment and I try to channel that in a positive way to my job. But I'm happy with my wife and my dog. I'm pretty cool with that. And my kids. I mustn't forget my kids. But but at work. Dog first. Yeah. (laughs) Dog first, maybe. No, you know, but at work, I'm I'm always, and the board, so it's not just myself, we're always pushing forward to have new ideas. I sound more of a complex character than I am. But, (laughs) you know, love work, get up early. And push for more, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And read the Financial Times and floss your teeth. There you go. Yeah, those are, those are definitely you, some that, good things. That's all you need to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Neil, you've been an absolute pleasure. Thank you Thank so you. much again for taking the time out. Thank you, Alicia. Really good. Enjoyed that. And to all of you listening, thank you so much for joining us. Hope you got some meaningful nuggets. I know I sure did. We'll be sure to keep the conversation going, of course. Drop us a line on LinkedIn at Retail Touchpoints, on Twitter, or I guess X now um, at our Touchpoints. We would love to hear any key takeaways or insights that you plan to apply to your business. And of course, tell us how we did. Leave us a rating or review on your preferred podcast player. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, frankly, anywhere else. And while you're there, subscribe to the show. We're always talking to amazing folks like Neil every week to talk about what's happening in the industry, what's happening within their business, and of course, how they are pushing retail forward. Thanks again to all of you. We will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.